0: You are listening to a Wavel Room podcast. This week, we discuss the Army's future operating concept with Lieutenant Colonel Gordon Muir. Colonel Muir talks about how the concept was generated and what it means for the British Army. Enjoy! Colonel, thank you very much for joining us for this Wavel Room podcast. I'd like to start by asking you to introduce yourself and tell me what you do. Great, thank you.
1: So, my name is Gordon Muir, I'm an SO1 in Futures Directorate at Army Headquarters. And I work there within the concept development team. So I am SO1 concept development.
0: And there's a particular concept you've been working on over the last two years.
1: Yes, there is. So the future directorate itself was established just after the new army operating model came in. And the director was set up to set the aiming mark and then drive subsequent change. And as a result of that, D-Fugers identified very early on the requirement for a land operating concept. And the reason why we need a land operating concept which isn't just to sort of go down some mad intellectual journey. It is really because there was a fundamental problem. And the problem sort of manifests itself in a couple of ways. But the first and foremost is that there's been no endorsed army concept since 2012. So the British Army's forced development and more importantly, capability decisions
0: have been kind of dealt with in sort of isolation in many regards. So no endorsed concepts since 2012? No. The context has changed significantly since then.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And without that foundation, that intellectual understanding about how the British army must fight and operate, especially as you mentioned in the face of the changes to character of warfare, it leaves a lot of these decisions somewhat unhinged. And that's not lack of effort. It's just we haven't had an endorsed concept in order to guide us through force development and then guide us through those capability decisions, which means that we end up with a better British army down the line. And I would also say that with personal equity in mind having been part of the embankment and future soldier team it is really unfortunate the army published the real detail behind future soldier four months before the invasion of ukraine and don't get me wrong everything throughout this process we've been guided by realism realism that there's change fatigue realism the fact that we can't just talk about future technology we need to have a realistic base But in the light of what happened, you know, just over a year ago in Ukraine, unfortunately, more than ever, the time is now to change and really build on future soldier, build on all the work that the Field army are doing now to make the army better and give that single vision and that cohering approach. And we would say also that post-CGS intervention at RUSI last year, we have a very clear purpose. So we can move away from this Swiss army knife force development that we're doing. And many would argue that's a strength that we can put a, put our hands to many tasks. And I certainly wouldn't suggest that our adaptability should in any way decrease. However, it's all fair and well writing land operating concept, but we need to get in force design and we need to get into the details. And the way to get into the details and make force design far more effective is to be specific. Be specific about threat, be specific about a purpose. And the land operating concept offers us a mechanism to do this, right? It underpins our combat credibility over the next decade and beyond. That's why it's, you know, so fundamental and important to have that single coherent vision and narrative for the British Army. So to be specific about the threat, what is the threat? In our view, Ukraine was a help, but also in some ways a hindrance to us making our case and our argument. The reason for that is that we started almost two years ago in development, and. Part of that is because you absolutely need intellectual validation, you absolutely need evidence. What we don't want is a two-page narrative written over a weekend. We want to describe and then also offer a way of fighting and operating that has that evidence and that backing of some of the trends and changes to the character warfare. And part of that is absolutely being crystal clear about the threat. And the threat to us is Russia, the strategic specificity is the Euro-Atlantic area. And I don't think that should necessarily come as
0: much of a surprise. Not really. Well, I would say, I think it's, it's good to hear the R-bomb being dropped, I suppose. And it's been a while now, clearly. It's informing the decisions we're making in terms of where the operating concepts is going. As you said, it is Russia, and we're confident in saying that it's Russia. Yeah,
1: I think there's a danger of all of us army officers descending into talking too much about strategy and not enough about warfare. But we need to remember that the UK's approach is founded on collective defence and NATO. And the strongest way to sort of show that is through this commitment of land forces. It's a huge demonstration of our commitment to collective defense. And that doesn't mean a group of determined people, although they absolutely have a role. It's about offering genuine, credible, hard power to support our allies while adding genuine battle-winning capability on top of that. And so at its heart, what the concept tries to do is offer relevant political choice. Presenting genuine options for the employment of land power as part of a joint force over the next decade. and we don't want to go into sort of the higher echelons of strategy or the planning. that's not necessarily our role as a concept. Our point and Michael Howard said it really well, it's not about arguing what approach to take. that's a politician's decision. Our responsibility is to make sure they have the choice and so what the concept's trying to do is offer you know that relevant political choice going forward. The concept itself, has over 100 references within it. We've commissioned 22, I think it is, bespoke research papers and conducted now over 30, I think it's about 31, 32, bespoke workshops with a variety of stakeholders to make sure that we take the Army's view, the key stakeholders view, experts in land warfare from the various think tanks and academia across the country. And also most important, and I'll come onto this a second, is that we've absolutely tried to discuss and share ideas cross-domain as early as possible and as thoroughly as possible and that sharing is involved with our allies we are naturally close with the us and they are going through their own conceptual development which we stay very close to we've also visited nato and what we've tried to do is capture their own concept development for the deterrence and defense of the Euro Atlantic, as well as their concept for war fighting in the future so we're absolutely nested we're absolutely driven by what nato wants and also our closest ally but if i can touch quickly on multi-domain or bringing other, other services. So as a British army, our role is to win battles with the joint force. Of course, each of our roles are going to be different, but we're really proud that within the concept itself, we've got a whole sort of section focusing in on the dependencies that we have on other domains. You know, we're not going to go alone. We need to be able to support the other domains just as much as they need to support us. So we'll absolutely talk about integration. We see this as a really important part of the overall process. So you have this consultation, you have this aspect that we've tried to be as multi-domain as possible. And then finally, in terms of our overarching outlook, this sounds a bit like conceptual abrogation, but we're not a strategy or a plan. We've absolutely tried to be resource aware, but not resource driven. At no point has any of us in the team said that we think we're 100% right. In fact, we are going to keep testing, refining, learning from ongoing conflict, so that we can try and prove that hundred percent a is completely unachievable, but also more importantly, it never existed to start off with. Right. And so if we get to 60, 70%, our argument's always been it's better for the army, which I personally think has suffered from a little bit of strategic incoherence in terms of its messaging has a single coherent narrative that we are all behind. We're now talking about an endorsed concept by the Integrated Concepts Board, by Defence, and more importantly, by the Executive Committee of the Army Board. Right? So this is Army and Defence saying, yep, I think the land forces have got this. So I just thought it was really important to mention our, our approach in terms of how extrovert, how sort of extensive we try to be, and also really importantly, the collaboration, not just with traditional think tanks, academia, but the wider Army, and more importantly, with the other domains so that we try and get it as right as possible, but always remembering that we're there to try and prove ourselves wrong as much as anyone else is.
0: That really strikes me as a, as a useful approach to take. Lots of people forget that no army starts any campaign ever with what it actually needs. And to convince yourself that 100% would ever even be something that was achievable is, is wasted effort, right? We always start with something we don't need, and then we end up with either taking what we've got and changing it to fit the problem or developing something new to fit the problem. It's reassuring to hear that that's the approach you've taken from the outset.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think we're in a competition, aren't we? Yeah.
0: Um, What we're trying to do is grab conceptually
1: a window of opportunity for how we are going to fight and win land battles. And that will change, A, depending on what capabilities come online, how well our people are trained, and all those sort of variables that we need to consider. But when you come into a fight, that window of opportunity, that advantage,
0: will diminish quite quickly. I think we're seeing from the current conflicts in Ukraine that things like ammunition stocks, the way that equipment can be repaired, all that sort of stuff is being used up extremely quickly. And I've read all sorts of reports about how Europe can't sustain the number of shells required to keep the Ukrainian force in the field. Is that something that's built into this looking at the wider UK ability to sustain the army in the field?
1: Yeah, definitely. And so we are absolutely an operating concept. So we are trying to focus on warfare and the conduct of warfare. But it's impossible to ignore the absolute intrinsic role that is going to play in the future. And you're absolutely right, we see that bearing out. I think what I would say is that there are hooks into what we require. And one of our foundational sort of principles, a way to address some of the change that we're seeing is this ability to adapt to pace. Now, internally, that's absolutely dependent on our people. But more broadly, that is the ability to adapt in and out of contact. And we're seeing very good examples now of being able to adapt in contact. But we also need to be able to have those same sort of processes to be able to adapt out of contact. And without that, we're, we're
0: going to get nowhere but Gen- and- general carter talks about training as a surrogate for warfare right the adaptation out of context we need to get better at using training as a way to properly practice and learn lessons for warfare
1: yeah absolutely and i think i think that some of the work seems to coming out of the land warfare center and field army more broadly are absolutely trying to tackle that there's some really good things about trying to refocus on the, on the fight and that is when you've got a singular purpose when you understand how you're going to employ those capabilities which the land operating concept hopefully should offer then that naturally gives you a far better steer as to what's required in the future. And one thing I would say about land industrial strategy, and you hit upon it with the sort of mention of stockpiles, is that there is a need to focus on some profoundly what I call unsexy things. And as a way of sort of example, the first war game we conducted, which was firmly for the land operating concept, was a sustainment. So it was a combat service support war game. And that was deliberate. That was a deliberate focus on, let's talk about combat service support from the outset. So we don't sort of forget that whilst we all talk about all the combat. And that ties into, I think, what your point about the wider land industrial strategies. You need to talk about how you sustain a force and how you get the force, not just into the field, but then make sure it can continue to
0: deliver effect. Exactly that. Well, I think you and I would probably want to sit here and talk about combined arms <laughs> maneuver and, and multi-domain maneuver and all that sort of stuff. but. It's, again, reassuring to hear that command service support was at the heart and at the start of your approach. Yeah. Well, we talked around it, but not about it yet. So what's the concept? Here we go. So I suppose it's it's worth
1: just talking a bit about the change. So I think first up, you know, as part of this uh, realistic approach I've talked about, it's that, you know, we recognize continuities. We see it playing out. And so Sun Tzu, Thucydides, Clouds of it. I'd probably add, depict to that. We all understand how important it is to master this and you know what it means for warfare, um, thousands of examples across hundreds of years. And, and this is absolutely a foundation, right? Training matters, understanding theory, the need to integrate capability, everyone's favorite combined arms maneuver, and absolutely that will to fight. But these things can't become a comfort blanket, shielding us from the changes of character to warfare that are occurring. And we need to look at that changing character and look at ways to address it our opinion is you can't accessorize your way out of this. You can't just bolt on little bits and pieces. You need to change the way you fight and then add on the capabilities and force development aligned to that. And that's what the land operating concept is, is trying to do. So what are the sort of key changes that we sort of highlight? The first is that simply you're going to be able to see and be seen by your enemy further than ever before. You'll then be able to strike with precision faster. And I mean both in terms of the weapon system speed, but also in terms of the decision-making behind it and at greater reach. So this is what we call the find and fires revolution. It's happening, it's ongoing, but more importantly, it's going to continue to progress. The next is the use of autonomy. And I mean this in the broader sense of what autonomy is. So ranging from uncrewed systems right through down to the, you know, use of artificial intelligence for decision support. You know, this need to deal with the increase in data, the processing of mission data from the other domains, all these things. And that means that we need to change, firstly, how we visualize the battle space. So how we visualize is different. And then this decision support and use of AI mean that, hey, it's going to change the tempo. And tempo, not in a traditional sense of faster or slower, but in terms of how we endure, how do we continually compete and endure across that sort of tempo? And put those both together, it means that you've essentially resulted in an expanded battle space. Everyone loves a good conversation about deep close rear, but your deep becomes your rear, your rear becomes your deep, and it's all sort of mishmashed. And that is a really important sort of deduction in terms of change when you have this expanded battle space, we talked about transparency and everything else, but people haven't talked about the growth of the sheer battle space that we're gonna to have to deal with. And so how are we gonna deal with it? Well, first of all, there's gonna be a growing digital data and software dependence. I mean, this is absolutely, I think, key. We've all seen it, but it's across the force, right? So we're talking about predictive sustainment we're talking about software becoming more important than the platform, you know, the ability to rapidly update rather than worrying about what kind of hardware is gonna turn up in 10, 15 years from a factory. We're talking about really being able to do things far quicker than ever before. And this is absolutely a continual progression. Walter Conkite in Vietnam, the famous US broadcaster, absolutely influenced, in many people's views, political decision-making on the Vietnam War. So the influence of war and conflict being in the public gaze has always sort of happened and has continued to evolve but arguably it's now going to be in the public gaze more than ever before the profusion of social media the use of mobile phones it means that first of all people are going to see what you're doing and how we then address that in terms of campaign legitimacy in terms of having the freedom maneuver that's absolutely going to be intrinsic and critical for us in terms of how we prosecute operations in the future so this sort of Find and Far's evolution, the growing use of autonomy, resulting in this expanded battle space, as I said, this growing digital data and software, and then finally the fact that our action is going to play out in the public gaze more than ever before. the sort of the four key changes that we've grouped together that have driven some of the conceptual work behind the concept.
0: I'm really interested in the, the public gaze thing. I feel like that is probably, I'm almost certain, that's something that you know the commanders in 1975 will have written about. There's the most un, an <laughs> unprecedented yeah. amount of time spent in the public gaze now I wonder if it's just scaled up like yes it's it's quicker than it was before Yeah, I'm sure many of the people who listen to this podcast will have spent probably too much time on Twitter or Instagram seeing videos of drones dropping yeah. things on on people and probably thought am I actually learning anything from this or not but also yes it's in the public gaze quicker but the public also has more to distract it than ever before and I suppose there's a whole load of information that comes out right so whereas in 1975 I just had my Sunday paper that might have had those pictures in, it might have been. Mm -hmm. And that will have been really, really shocking. The abundance of stuff that comes out now, probably, what's your opinion? Does it lower people's expectation? Or what would you say the opinion of the operating concept is? Yeah,
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really good point, especially because my example of Walter Cronkite in the Vietnam War, Mm. people listened to him and he was the source of authority. And therefore shaped opinion hugely because people were transfixed right because there was yeah. a couple of several television stations as one news and he was it but um, there's no there's
0: no like we're not like post news era yeah. there's no voice of authority anymore is there
1: yeah and i think i'm a big fan of continuity and evolution and we're not saying that any of these sort of four changes haven't been witnessed or are being seen even now I would say that the deduction, which we'll come on to in a second from this, is that you're right, it is spread. People do use their own sources. There's not just one source, but actually that sort of makes it far more important to get ahead of the game and be far more proactive in terms of how we compete in the information domain. It's no good just sort of saying, well... I'm sure that will pass over in a day, or it doesn't really matter what that audience thinks. Actually, we've got to be in a situation where we need to be influencing all these audiences because we don't know where they're getting their news from, we don't know where they're getting information. And so the risk to mission is pretty profound. And this is not just from a front page of a tabloid. This is instantaneous Twitter feed against various things. How do you counter that disinformation? How do you counter the effect that has on the mission? How do you counter the effect that has on our people? Because, you know, ultimately it's our people who are gonna potentially face the brunt of it. And speaking to the police, they have some amazing stories of behaviors of the public when an incident occurs, almost forgetting what's going on all around them well-being of their children loved ones just desperate to record what is going on yes and i think we we're not necessarily as good as we could be and we set permissions and policies at a very high level which prevents people on the ground potentially having the freedom or the ability to to counteract and engage proactively within the information sphere.
0: Well, yeah, it's probably something that we're all a little bit uncomfortable with and hopefully the people who come after us will be more comfortable with it, right? Because we we didn't grow up in that era. We didn't grow up understanding how these things work. And I naturally trust a paratrooper or a rifleman or whoever to discharge his weapon safely because I know he's trained well and I, I understand how that works. Do I trust them to use social media safely? I don't think so right but that's something that we're all probably going to have to get more comfortable with
1: absolutely and I mean there are examples right so Apache pilots now are very comfortable with everything they do being filmed mm. so there are elements of our force who are very much aware of the sort of pressures this brings yeah and the sort of the, also the positiveness right because the other th- aspect of it it's not always wrongdoing in many ways it will show how well yes. our soldiers have performed yeah you're right and that's that's positive that's a way of being proactive in this sort of that area
0: right so the deductions from
1: these four points then <laughs> yeah so as I said that's, those are sort of sort of big changes that we talk about and within the concept itself we've also detailed 12 operational challenges which I won't go into in the interest of time but Fundamentally, those operational challenges are what all the sort of ideas are based off to say that we have to tackle those operational challenges. But broadly, um, there's sort of five areas. And the first up is to discuss about readiness, because frankly, very simply, speed matters. And there's a very traditional paradigm now of this sort of deterrence by punishment vice deterrence by denial. Now, this idea of deterrence by punishment is that you wait for a bad act to happen, and then obviously you seek to punish in this case, the enemy or Russia, as it may be. But you do so by constructing an Iron Mountain, moving slowly across the European continent, and then obviously fighting a reclamation battle. A reclamation battle that no one wants a part of, that has significant risk to all involved in terms of nuclear jeopardy. And frankly, it's, it's not an option. It's not a very good choice, in our opinion.
0: Well, Ukraine's having to do it right now.
1: And it's not, it's not a nice fight. And so that's a very traditional idea that, don't worry, we've got the means to punish. But the punish boxes you into a corner, leaving you very few options to deal with this sort of fait accompli activity of, of Russia or another actor. So what the concept talks about is shifting to this idea of deterrence by denial. And deterrence by denial really means being there. And that is generated by having some forces in place, really great capabilities ready to be act, but also having the reactive forces and the capability to be nimble, expeditionary, to get there when it matters. And that's what, to by now army, you need to get there, you need to fight initially in order to prevent them from achieving their operational objectives. And it's not necessarily putting ourselves in this sort of idea that we're going to win, actually by not losing that first battle. Is how you're going to sort of justify the win. It's about collective defence. We're going to come and support a NATO ally. It's their territory. We need to support their fight. And that is by, as I said, offering genuine battle winning capability, but it's also by giving that demonstrable commitment of British land forces, credible hard power, ready to conduct military action in support of them. And that's what deterrence now means. It means about getting there first. It means maximising the choice for defence. And General Milley, in a podcast a couple of weeks ago, said it's about get there firstest with the mostest. And he m- neatly summed up one of the driving factors about why we're tackling readiness and what the British Army needs to be doing. And we firmly believe also that yes, I've talked very clearly about the threat, very clearly about the geographic strategic specificity, but the army that is focused on this task, right? One that is focused on being expeditionary, and nimble, the one that focused on speed, this is far more employable. It's far more able to be transferred to another strategic problem as they emerge. And this is absolutely for us as a British army to tackle. And this is one of the major shifts in terms of how do we tackle the changes and also how do we offer real value, real choice to NATO. But before that, absolutely to the joint force and defence and nation.
0: I think it's absolutely spot on. I challenge you on whether it's needed. 16 Brigade on up Solidarity did exactly that. That was 2020, aligned with when Russia was finishing its Kavkaz 20 exercise. And 16 Brigade headquarters and one of their rifle companies jumped into Mikolaev and then went to Kherson and practiced going over the Dnieper, right? which is a, a, a genuine problem for the Ukrainians now, I think. So it's something I think we've been aware of for a while. Are we going to see more of that sort of thing then?
1: Yeah, so, you know, a 16 Brigade absolutely has a role to play. But We need to remember that ultimately you need to have credible hard forces in play and in terms of reaction, in terms of commitment, brilliant, but in terms of enduring, being able to fight that sort of land battle, that's not the only force element that's required and so When we talk about deterrence by denial it means having forces in play as i said that can support our partners and allies offer that sort of symbiotic partnership so we offer them genuine capability to make them better but then it's also having the forces that are able to fight alongside and support them and yes 16 brigade getting in early may be very helpful but we also need to have follow-on forces that can arrive in that time and speed that means they're relevant
0: we can't do that currently can we
1: so It's interesting. So a lot of the stuff we discussed in the concept, as you rightly challenged, it's not new. And there are absolutely elements that you can trace back throughout the years, how the shift in NATO doctrine and how they've approached a specific problem has evolved and changed depending on political imperatives. Forward Defence, for example, was a German imperative, because they said, well, well, hold on a second. We're not letting them come and decimate our entire country. Fair one. We want forward defence. Yeah. And likewise now with the Baltic nations, we're seeing this sort of a threat and sort of seeing that on their doorstep.
0: They want to see we've got skin in the game too. Absolutely. And again, without trying
1: to talk too much about strategy rather than warfare, that's why we have enhanced forward presence. That is why we are on a sort of continual rotation into Cabrit, And that is showing that commitment, but it's also showing that you need a force balance. You have to mix the in-place... You need to mix that with the readiness, the real high readiness, 16 brigade elements, and then you also need to respond. So with the reactive forces and that it's about notice to effect, right? It's not about saying that, you know, you have a notice to move. We're talking about generating genuine notice effect and that's kind of being played out in some of the war games we're doing now that once you sort of have this mindset, and this is really critical as well, right? It's having that outlook and mindset as an army. That you'll hear about deterrence banal. You know, your aspiration is to get there first, get their firstest with the mostest, as Millie said, and that—that's a real change in how we do things.
0: And so, I suppose would be right to say that we are going to see a move towards more armoured forces being able to move more quickly?
1: So this—this this is where it becomes really interesting. And what we have done is present, you know, an idea and a way of countering. And it's now in the hands of our sort of sister team to really turn this into something tangible through the force design and force development. Right. So what, what are the implications of this? And we're, uh, again, trying to lean on this realistic approach. We know what the programmer record is and we know what we're committed to. The Army of 2035 is going to have Ajax. The Army of 2035 is going to have Boxer and it's going to have Challenger 3. Mm. And. So how do we maximize their usage? And part of that is talking about being able to have systems that they augment, mm. but also to have a conversation about how we employ those forces within the overall concept or the way of fighting that will develop. No one's, no one's saying that we're going to get rid of armor. However, no, no. what we're saying is there is a balance to be struck between where you have certain forces to achieve notice to effect and then the readiness that supports and comes behind it. And this is not us harking back to the good old days of british army of the rhine or what have you this is us talking about us being expeditionary nimble and front footed so as these problems emerge we Mm. get there and we show through genuine commitment the deterrence value and that's ultimately what it boils down to we don't want to fight this no one wants to fight this we want to be able to deter
0: it and you deter that by having the credible hard power And actually having it there when it's needed yeah yeah i just think yeah it's a difficult thing because those three armored vehicles we just talked about there they will all arrive at a very different time (laughs) presumably you get a boxer and drive there probably pretty quickly
1: this is when it's so important to talk about our dependencies, right? And so we need airlift, we need maritime, we need strategic lift, for example. So we depend massively on that. We depend massively on strat-com and strat-based outload. We need no sort of facilities in order to sort of achieve that notice of to effect. Don't get me wrong, huge dependencies on others to get this right. Ronald Reagan gave a great speech on the 40th anniversary of D-Day landings in Normandy in 1984. You know, and he talked about, it's better to be here, ready to protect the peace rather than being across the sea and then reacting when it happens, when freedom is lost, essentially. And although he's obviously talking about the US, I think there's, you know, some salient points from that, which are equally applicable to all of us. Right. Readiness covered. (laughs) Great. next? And so, yeah, the second part is campaigning relentlessly is what we've called it. And in simple terms, that's about winning the pre-conflict conflict. We're going to be in a situation where we need to make a broader contribution And it's going to be difficult, it's going to be complex, and it's going to be pretty global. But we can't abrogate our way out of our responsibilities and the fact that we're going to get asked to do it. And so the concept talks about a prioritization. There's a real need to be quite ruthless in how we prioritize this and focus on what kind of effects we want to achieve. And that's kind of how we talk about constraining malign activity and all the sort of good things aligned to the integrated operating concept and in time the future operating concept that DCDC DC are developing. So that's our sort of broader contribution and awareness. And there's lots more detail in the concept itself.
0: I would say I, I don't think we want to to take ourselves out of that responsibility, right? Because no. that's that's where oh, we get our experience.
1: Absolutely not. No, no. no. So we're no by no means are we saying that at all. We just think that we need to prioritise on the right areas. And for the
0: right reasons. But I also think for a young officer or soldier listening to to this, it's reassuring today that that's not, we're not going to be sat on our bergens waiting to deploy and just deny an area. We are still going to be engaging ahead of the conflict somewhere and campaigning relentlessly because at the end of the day, that's what a lot of people join to do.
1: You know, hey, things change. And, you know, Talib talks about the black swans and we as an army need to be ready for this. And part of that is gaining experience through this activity within broader campaign and broader competition against malign activity but there's also the awareness that we have national interests and the British army will continue to be asked to do those those sorts of activity and what we've done is provide a sort of framework for that and then also the advice as I said concept is the vision for it we're saying that we need to prioritize and be very clear-sighted about it. So the third area is this cross-domain success. I mentioned that we're really pleased that we have a whole sort of annex section devoted to dependencies. And what we really want to talk about here is how are we going to enable other domains to have effect? How can we become a net contributor rather than a net demander to the sort of multi-domain system? And what that means is that For example, for air, can we get inside through our presence and persistence? Can we get inside an A2AD bubble and allow them to then prosecute effects? Can we, with the greater fine and fars revolution, what does that mean for shorter ships, shorter maritime fars? What can we do to support them better in order for them to deliver effect? What does that mean for cyber electromagnetic domain? What kind of workforce do you require in order to support? We are obviously hugely dependent on space communications some of the targeting infrastructure that we require so how are we going to contribute but then also be very clear about what we're going to demand from them and that's an area that we're pleased about in terms of how we've approached the the concept but it's something that we're absolutely going to do so the third area is when they enable cross-domain success
0: yeah it's an interesting way of describing it and i worry that my my lazy way of describing multi-domain operations is it's just it's just combined arms maneuver we Combined arms manoeuvre is <laughs> the centre of everything. You just add more arms essentially. But that is a very infantry centric way of looking yeah, at it.
1: And don't get me wrong. I think the, the one point of divergence that we have from the overall multi-domain enterprise is that we've talked about this need to integrate for advantage and everyone gets it. But often people think that you're going to multi-domain your way out of something. And you're not, there'll be certain specific areas where integration makes huge sense is absolutely integral. I mean, a mission data is a prime example of this sort of multi-domain need to be able to access mission data, process it, and be able to deliver effect across domains. But that's not saying that we're going to simply have it as a overarching sort of be all end all. And so that's where we've sort of tried to caveat slightly and be again, realistic. And not say that there's some panacea that's going to deliver within the next few years or even up to decade as well as we'd like it to. It's absolutely the way we're going to go about doing business. We are absolutely going to rely on the other domains. They are going to need our support as well. Yet, let's just be very clear about where we're choosing to do it within limited resources in order to achieve maximum effect. The fourth one is this adapted pace. And I think we kind of covered that at the outset. We talk about people a lot and people are absolutely critical at all delivering this concept. But especially within this area of having the right people that are able to adapt and innovate, it's gonna be so important. And in many ways, people are gonna matter far more than the stuff that we get. You know, you need to have the right people. And again, as I said, that's about being adaptive also in and out of contact. And then I think the, the final one or the real sort of meat of it is this sort of, is a wonderful umbrella one, which is fight and operate differently. And so there are obviously lots of strands and I'll just pick out sort of a few. The the first up is this response to this find and fires revolution. And that is bringing recce strike down to every level. Now we already talk about it in terms of deep divisional levels. We've got deep recce strike brigade, for example, but we're talking about bringing this down and what does that look like? Well, This is talking about the layering of appropriate effects. So find and strike assets down to the lowest appropriate level. So we want to have a complementary system of being able to deliver your find and then being able to strike it effectively. And we talk about the sort of concentric kill chains, everything supports and everything else is being able to sort of reach out as far as possible, but then also deliver effect. I talked about, you know, we have a window of advantage. And in one way that we sort of looked at, and I think we're not alone in this in terms of Western armies, is this ability now to be able to see and also then be able to strike, find and strike at distance. So bringing recce strike down to every level is our response to the find and fires revolution. And this is really important because I talked about the 3D aspect and getting people to think far more in 3D. So two key parts of it, first of all, is the near surface is the sort of term we've coined along with the other domains there was a lot of talk about near ground before but in conversation with our domains part of this collaborative approach we settle on near surface because funnily enough maritime have exactly the same problems so it's far better to have a collective term that everyone understands across the fence and this area is in many ways land forces vertical flank it's going to be massively congested contested not just with uncrewed systems but across ems right across the electromagnetic spectrum and we need to get conversant and we need to get
0: really good in that new area for people yeah. who, who like the taste of crayons like me I, <laughs> we we're talking about the air domain right Is is i suppose denied quite successfully by s300s by surface to air missiles that that sort of thing is that space in between the the drones the lancets on kamikaze drones, those sorts of things that we are struggling to defeat at the minute. That's what we're talking about, isn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. That sort of area. So we've been very keen not to give it an altitude.
0: Yeah. Because as soon
1: as you give it an altitude, you create even more problems. We're just saying that that there is a space between what is absolutely firmly air and what is just the land. There is a gap and a seam that's been exploited. And we see it now with all the systems you mentioned. And it's going to continue to proliferate. And also more importantly not just within the fight but it's within sort of the violent extremist organizations and actors we've seen it in syria we've seen other places they're exploiting that seam far more effectively than ever before we've all sat in fobs and various bases in afghanistan and iraq where if you'd had the sort of uas threat it would have been a different a very different experience Yeah, a very different experience absolutely and so those are sort of two component parts of this wreck sort of strike but fundamentally it is Building ability to have that greater lethality and greater ability to sort of see and strike at reach. Hmm. So it's it's a bit of essentially standoff capability. And again, we're doing it now, we're absolutely trying to do that in the deep, but we're just saying that you have to bring it down. Yeah. Because of that change in the character warfare. If you don't bring it down, then you're gonna leave the close battle at a significant disadvantage in order to compete and win.
0: So you're gonna bring back the fifty-one millimeter mortar.
1: Actually, we had a conversation about 120 millimeter mortar the other day and what it represents. So, absolutely, there are solutions and capability solutions out there. But what we should absolutely be talking about is, is range. We need to talk about how sustainable it is. We need to talk about the precision. So, lots of people jumped on this idea that when we just buy loads more dummy ammunition, it's really cheap. Yeah, I mean, the munitions is really cheap, but the sustainment. The trucks, the shipping—that's not cheap, and that's a whole other component that you have to consider. So yeah. there's a lot of things to balance it against.
0: It's cheaper if you use something that actually kills what it's trying to kill instead of misses it because it's not—it's not precise. Yeah. So that's wreck
1: strike, and you know, really fundamental to what we're trying to do. The next is, as part of this expanded battle space that I talked about, is we have to treat survival as a deliberate operation. We can't deliver effects if we've already been defeated, destroyed, or even before that, if we're found, because that's going to have to generate our own behaviors in order to respond. So I think first of all, that means better protection. And there is a basic layer to this, right? There is relying on CAM concealment and everything else, but it also means far more greater understanding of, of the next point I was going to talk about, which is becoming, you know, expert sort of maneuvering the electromagnetic spectrum and in, within cyber. So we have to treat survival and the ability to survive and be able to then to deliver effect absolutely is a deliberate operation far more than we ever have. And this idea of becoming sort of an invisible army or this sort of striving for, at the lowest level, a greater understanding of what it really means, what is what band you're, you're emitting on matters. And so we have to get far more conversant and far more serious about how we survive in the future. And then, as I said, part of that is the third area, which is this competence in the electromagnetic spectrum and cyberspace, I think is absolutely going to be a determinant of success in the future battlefield. It's going to be contested, absolutely congested, yet we're going to have to outmaneuver. We have to seek positions of advantage and outpace and outmatch own an opponent in those domains because it's going to be so intrinsic to us to be able to deliver
0: effects. I'm really pleased that you only, you only touched on protection because it certainly felt like coming out of the campaigns that have shaped my career as uh, Afghanistan, protection became what survivability was, right? Yeah. You, we upgraded our vehicles. We added the, the V-shape, blah, blah, blah. blah. We, we're all aware of what that is. But there's so much more to survivability than protection. And actually increasing the weight and size of our vehicles is, is not going to improve our survivability.
1: No, especially when, as I've mentioned before, about mobility and firepower, right? And so if you want to go and fight and you want to get there firstest with the mostest, then unfortunately, that doesn't necessarily equal some yeah. overly heavy, overly protected vehicles which limit your mobility. So exactly. They absolutely, some, some have a role, but in other cases, we need to take into consideration all other facets of how you protect and ultimately mm. survive. The fourth one is this sort of logistics, right? Logistics need to adapt to the Fine and Fires revolution. And I mentioned before about this expanded battle space, your deep rear, rear deep, and the precision strike, it means that concentration is going to get punished, limited redundancy, limited resilience, all those things are going to become so easy for the enemy to target and a huge vulnerability. So how do we adapt our logistic provision? How do we sustain in this fine and far revolution within this sort of precision age and. Part of that, you know, there's some solutions about host nation support. There's there's talk about strat-based outload, all these things. But fundamentally, we need to talk about self-reliance. We need to talk about treating sustainment almost as a deliberate sort of maneuver, maneuver to sustain, because traditionally it was in the rear, it would bring up and that's fine. But now it's getting targeted and it will require the same assets as a combat unit in order to protect and survive in the future battlefield. And that's what we mean about treating logistics and needing them to adapt across this dispersed and expanded battlefield. And then the, the final one, and we sort of talked about it when we discussed about land battle playing out in the public gaze, and that is this sophistication speed and, you know, increased reach of information warfare. Simply we need to be proactive and we need to get a grips with it. And it's no good being reactive once it's started. We need to sow the seeds now. We need to set the conditions now in order to be a success in the future. There's no good saying, oh, we need to do some information warfare. Now, this is a slow burning long-term investment game. It's not something we can just turn on straight away when a conflict arises. And it's also really important for deterrence, right? Again, go back to the point, although I love talking about warfare and everything else, it's about deterring through being credible, communicating it effectively. And that's what we really mean by sort of increasing the speed and reach of information warfare.
0: That's a bit hard for us to control, though, isn't it?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's about policies. It's about permissions. It's yeah. about capability. And it's about having that conversation now, right? So we are trying to offer genuine, relatively pure conceptual military advice, in my opinion. And as we work towards the force design as we work towards sort of the headmark mark potentially in the future that's when resource constraints that's when policy that's when permission constraints that's when that all filters in and you end up with a plan right however up until that point we should have this conversation we shouldn't pretend that it's not a thing and i think we might be surprised in some of these areas with the answer because ultimately it's a politician's choice it's not our choice and so we just need to be open
0: and honest about what we think we require and what we will need to do so we've got the we've got the principles of the, the operating concept. Yeah. So what happens next with
1: it? Ah. Uh, well, what happens next? Conceptually, what we have done, and this is probably the most important thing, and I appreciate it. it's taken a while to get round to, it, is that we've constructed a new sort of battle framework, and that is taking into account all the things that i've talked about about bringing you know recce strike down to the you know less level it's talking about how we deal with logistics and everything else that and this sort of battle winning framework is really important and i'm going to talk about it in a rather linear fashion but it's really important to remember that when i, as I talk about it is we don't see this as a step-by-step guide some of these will be happening concurrently some of them will be enduring and some of them will be fleeting but fundamentally you know you take all of these sort of considerations and you left with a a few deductions, which lead us to this framework. And first up is that we need to try and make the deep battle as decisive as possible. We need to take advantage of this window of opportunity in terms of our find, reach and strike. And in order to do that, we need to be able to dislocate the enemy's offensive and defensive systems, render it less effective or make them think it's less effective, and then we need to exploit or be able to exploit that dislocation effectively. We're also increasingly going to see the close battle acting as a shape for these deep effects. And this shape will happen in primarily two ways, right? First of all, you're going to have to blunt. No one in any sense is suggesting that the close battle isn't going to remain really important, but you're going to end up having to blunt the enemy forces, allowing deep effects to be brought to bear. And then you potentially also may undertake offensive maneuver to penetrate the enemy's defensive system, then light up in depth, all the enemy critical assets and vulnerabilities, which you can then strike with depth at. So that's, you know, using the close battle to shape and then two other things, blunt and penetrate as part of that. But you know, Hey, that's nothing if you can't get there, right? So there's absolutely important that we need to project. And throughout that, you know, you need to protect the force through dispersal, deception, concealment, unpredictability, and countering their kill chain. And that means you can survive, right? So you need to project a force, you need to be able to sustain that force. And then whilst you're doing, you absolutely need to survive. Otherwise, as we said before, you can't deliver effect. So at the risk of being very linear about it, you're going to project. You need to survive when you project and you're in place. Once there or in place, you need to be able to shape the deep battle. And you shape by blunting enemy offensive action or conducting offensive maneuver to penetrate Light up the enemy's defensive and defensive system in depth, which then allows you to further dislocate, rendering the enemy's systems ineffective, which then sets you up for an exploitation. And hey, not just the sort of exploitation by maneuver. I'm talking about exploitation by fires, proper fires. And taking all this together, it means that, you know, you create a British army that's operationally defensive, which... No one should come as any surprise, right? NATO is a defensive alliance. And I always say that you can read British Army doctrine and you could be under the mistaken view that all we conduct is offensive manoeuvre. And so changing that mindset slightly, giving us and equipping us with the ability to change our approach according to the situation. So if it's circumstances are right to manoeuvre, great. If the situation's better to attrit and use fires, great. Or if you need to move to a position of advantage, allow our fundamental doctrine, you know, the manoeuvres approach to dictate that, right? So be guided by that. Just don't mistake manoeuvre for manoeuvrist, And that is really important to our overall battlefield framework. And there is of course nuance, right? It's not this linear progression, but it's about seizing the opportunities. It's about assessing the circumstances and then get fluid amongst this chaos of battle that absolutely undoubtedly will ensue. And that's really, really important part of it to remember. But this sort of framework is going to be really important in our eyes to change the army's outlook and how the army is going to fight. So in many ways, the preamble of accepting continuities, identifying the core changes, seeing what the army is going to do about it, and then looking at some of of the niche areas about the approach in terms of recce strike, information warfare, what it essentially boils down to is really delivering against the ability to project survive shape the battle dislocate and then exploit that's really the sort of the key area that we've tried to come up with in terms of framework this real battle winning framework
0: i've I'm, been I'm imagining i it's gonna be a terrible analogy here <laughs> strap yourself in. okay it. i'm ready i'm ready, frosty A uh, chess game in the dark almost particularly as you talk about the the close battle enabling the deep strike so you're you Hitting the contact line in a way to get the enemy to shine a torchlight on where their king and queen are so mm-hmm. that you can then strike. That's my lazy... and Just to show people I know some chess pieces. <laughs> but it, yeah, us and the opponent are most likely going to be trying to protect everything yeah. they have that enables them to fight. So you'll almost have this, I suppose, hesitancy perhaps even to engage because you don't necessarily want to reveal where your you know, where your deep strike assets are because as soon as that missile goes in the air, you've got to move it to somewhere else or... There's counter-battery fire that you might have to say, When do you unmask? When do you allow your different assets to be used because they'll suddenly become visible and then vulnerable?
1: Yeah, and this, this speaks to, uh, you remember when I talked about tempo? Yes. People talk about faster, slower. But actually there's a, there's a new component and that is endure. Mm. And by endure, it is really about maintaining combat effectiveness and combat capability. And to an extent outlasting and working out more importantly when to reveal certain assets for decisive effect and you know it's going to be a real voyage of working out over the next few months as we continue the war game and as we continue to learn lessons to understand far better how you achieve that balance hmm. and especially if you have for example a fires plan or a deception plan in place at a higher level and yet the lower sort of command finds something has suffered from the effects of network degradation and so you'll forget there's a competition so the enemy is going to try and deny your networks just as much as you're trying to try and deny theirs and then you're left with a decision to make right do you prosecute or is it actually part of a wider plan and so there's a whole load of areas that we need to investigate but when we talk about this fight there are going to be significant challenges and I and you talked about this sort of operational challenges at the beginning you are going to have to decide when to sort of utilize your network and utilize your capabilities to best effect. But you're also going to hopefully be in a situation where we can choose, right? You want to be able to choose to be connected rather than the enemy dictating whether you're connected. And that plays into your point, absolutely, about understanding what to reveal and when. And it also then, you know, as we talked about in the concept, is that you have to become far more conversant with EMS because you need to understand what you're emitting. I'm very lucky I'm going to go off to command in a few weeks' time. And what I know about bands. And signature management, I'm ashamed to say you could write on the back of a postage stamp and that's not good enough anymore. And so, you know, you need to become a lot more technical savvy about what this all means. And
0: You've got to understand that you're making a choice, right? And so be communicating a lot so is something that will give us an advantage over an enemy, but it's making sure that when you do choose to do that and you spike up on the EMS space at a time of your choosing... And then you have a plan to get out of there yeah. as quickly as possible.
1: Yeah, but it's a balance, right? You can't, you can't protect your way out of this. You have to balance this with the mobility. You have to balance this with the continuities I mentioned before, the solid training, the ability to sort of maneuver alongside other capabilities which will offer you that protection. And then, you know, using technology to your advantage. We don't want to fall into the trap where we think that technology is going to buy us out of this. No. It's not going to buy us out of it. It's going to be a component part. A lot of the force is gonna be the same in 2035 as we have now, but there's gonna be certain components which are gonna add absolute value. We're gonna develop and improve those capabilities further, which means that you'll be able to fight in this way. But going back to what I said at the beginning is that I don't think we can accessorize our way out of it. You need to have this battle-winning framework, this idea of how we're going to fight in the future to then drive your force development capability decisions so you have something far more coherent and this single narrative and we are going to continue to test currently we're doing one of the most ambitious army war games ever held and that's going to finish the end of june and we're then looking to publish the concept on the 20th of july and once we've got the concept out there this is an endorsed army and defense concept this means that we can then start setting our narrative and tone right and that's important because the aiming point is to use the concept use the force design and then construct a single coherent narrative for the army, building up to the Integrated Review. Whenever the next government calls it, that's what we need to be ready for. And that's what we have absolutely kept in the back of our minds throughout this. And I generally believe that this battle winning framework has legs. I think that it's gonna be proven in some of the testing. I think it will offer us advantage as long as we get these sort of the other things right. And we all push behind this sort of
0: singular idea and singular sort of coherent narrative. So you mentioned you're going on to command? Yeah, I am. You're going to arrive at a battalion with this knowledge very fresh in your mind. How's that going to change how you train and prepare your battalion for what it does?
1: So there's going to be some green shoots. People are working really hard to make the army better now. But fundamentally, I, as a battle group commander, personally, I'm not going to see, and we collectively are not going to see across the Army, some of the growth in capabilities that we all want to have for the British Army. And I probably won't see those in my
0: command tenure the next couple of years. And that's a that's a common sentiment. And there's I going mean, to be... That kind of links back to where we were at the start of this. Where, you know, we're only going to have 70% of what we need and when we get there will change. That's always going to be the case. And we should accept that yeah. we will all command at some point, whatever level we command at, with... Not what we would want to have, but with what we've got. And we've exactly. got to prepare our people so that when what we want to have does come, they're able to use it straight away in the best way they
1: possibly could. 100% frosty. And that's exactly, so my long-winded way of coming around to saying that is that, uh, no, 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 not at all. It's that you need a bank that. Yeah. And then you need to be you know, look at yourself and say that you if you can affect what you can affect. And there's a whole series of decisions, small decisions, which have led us to the situation now within the British army. And that's, you know, you've got to bank that. That doesn't, absolutely doesn't matter. What you want to do is say that, Hey, let's affect what we can affect and get on with it. And the core thing that we owe the next generation. So the young soldiers joining, you're going to be Lance Corpus Corpals, the young second of tenants, is equipping them with the means. And I mean that in terms of the processes and ways of a firstly to fight, which the concept should hopefully tackle in time when it gets, you know, enshrined in doctrine and everything else. But more than that, it's about saying, that Hey, you know, we're about fighting. I mean, my generation, probably one of the last ones to go through PCD when using as an example was that the actions on were yet yeah, just leave them. And the CSM will come and sweep up. Right. That's that, and that's about fighting. That's about war. Whereas we never really practiced that during coin quite rightly. And so it was about that shift. So what do we owe we owe them the shift in mentality we owe them to say that this is how you meant to do it through rigorous training you know in and, and systems cats, things in terms of processes and getting that right so how we fight and then more importantly down the other layer is getting that comfort blanket that i spoke to you about at the beginning although things are changing that comfort blanket still needs to be in place right you still need to wrap your soldiers around in the fundamentals and the basics and otherwise we're going to do them a huge disservice we're going to do our people a huge disservice so as I look forward, I'm going to have to stop thinking too future and conceptually and get back to really focusing on training through the basics and all the stuff that we know instinctively matters. And then also me personally relearning some of these things, right? We've all, we've all been in a, very much in a coin-focused army, an operate-focused army. And so now turning it into fight means that we need to get that outlook and we need to get that mindset right in terms of how we approach the training of our people. So I will use that as my initial guide. And I must say that I think that I think that everyone gets that. Yeah. I would just say that our contribution in concepts and futures is that we're just trying to give them the framework. We're trying to give them the way we should do this. So it's not just small pockets and it's not just relearning. It's with a specific way in mind. And I, I think that's a pretty important thing. I agree.
0: That's Thank you very much. No worries. Thank you. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you enjoyed it, please like and subscribe. It helps others help find our content. And don't forget to head to wavering.com for the latest defence thought leadership.